This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press about how faith is changing culture in unexpected ways. I'm Nancy Wang Yoon. I'm a sociologist, a pop culture expert, and a professor at Biola University. New eyes that look at the world in new ways. New eyes make contact blue, green, and gray. New eyes I realized I never knew when you realize feelings you trapped inside of you. New eyes that see the respect you earn. And I am so excited to be here with my friend G. Hello. Here again. So, G, this week I talked to my very good friend, also. Uh, Jason Chu. Which I always feel like we should always say, drop the beat, you know, or something like that afterwards. <laughs> I don't I don't even know. <laughs> I am, I'm so far. I, was, I told Jason on the podcast that, you know, when people were listening to either hip hop or Nirvana, I was listening to 70s folk. Oh, my God. <laughs> Nancy. <laughs> so not that I'm, I, I totally appreciate hip hop and all hip hop culture is. Uh, but I am not like the the expert at all. You're and not so, a child of the '90s hip hop. Huh? I, I mean, I am in the sense that I'm a child of the '90s, and it, it was all around me, right? And it was always on. And so, and, and you know, and I think that as I got older, I, I appreciate the political, you know, and the the kind of um, rap that really I think brings about uh, and prophecy, essentially, right? Talking about. Um, what is what? What are the problems? What what we need change? Social commentary. That's right. That's but right. you are such a nerd. You know that. Like you're like, I really love hip hop for the social commentary. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, okay, Nancy, you definitely are a pop culture expert. <laughs> hey, isn't the theme song for this podcast by Jason Chu? Yes, and I love the song. I think it's perfect for um, our podcast. He's got the right tone. He's a person of faith. He's Asian American. But the song, the idea of having new eyes, the idea that yeah, that's a new beginning. You know, for for this for this season, I thought it was perfect. His music has been actually on some big deal mm-hmm. things. His music has been heard on Warrior, Snowpiercer, Woo Assassins. He's so he's everywhere. It'll be a great listen. So let's let's listen. I am here with Jason Chu, who is a rapper and activist, speaking hope and healing in a broken world. I love that. Uh, he has shared poetry at the Obama White House. He's been featured in the Chinese American Museum of Los Angeles and presented at the Getty Center. And the first time I think that Jason and I uh, got to know each other was actually when I was invited to a podcast he was hosting. So it's just, it's a whole world of podcasts. I mean, I don't even listen to that many podcasts to confess. So it's ironic that I am hosting one. So anyway, so yeah, so we met back in February 2019 on the email about the podcast. And then we ended up seeing each other for the first time, I think the day that we recorded the podcast, right, Jason? And then we saw each other at the um, Always Be My Maybe premiere. Yes, a film that is still near and dear to my heart. Uh, yes. Because of Randall Park, because of Ali Wong, and because of you, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 
asked for two of the promotional posters to take home because that's the kind of uh, <laughs> Asian American I am. And so I then gifted one to Jason later because he saw that I had two. And he was like, hey, because <laughs> he came over to my place and he's like, oh, you have an extra. I was like, it's yours, Jason. <laughs> and it's it's still it's, it's literally sitting in a place of honor uh, in, in my apartment right now. That's that's still actually of the recent spate of Asian Americana. That's actually one of my favorite pieces, and we can get into that later, but I think it's just such a great film that's exactly what it is. Um, and so I think very dearly of that. It is. It's got that amazing Keanu Reeves scene that's, I think, mm -hmm. iconic of him, you know, um, slow motion walking through and everyone admiring and the fact that he's playing himself. And I think that everyone, you know, wants to every Asian American wants to claim him. We want to claim him as one of our own because he's so cool and he's been around for so long and he's a nice guy. Right. Um, one of the few, I think, non problematic celebrities in our Gosh in our society. <laughs> yeah, and what I love about Always Be My Maybe is that I actually personally think of a lot of the recent Asian American content, it's actually the most Asian American, mm -hmm. right? Because e even, you know, obviously love Crazy Rich Asians and love Shang-Chi and love so many of these pieces of representation, but so many of them feel like they need this tie to Asia, right? Mm -hmm. Even Shang-Chi, right? Not Spoiler alert. But, you know, the, the climax of the film takes place in this sort of uh, fantastic version of, of Asia, this, 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 you know, sort of uh, heightened version of an Asian heritage. And what I love about Always Be My Maybe is that it, to me, feels like Asian America. It feels like, you know, this, this dude who's kind of bummy, who plays in a little rap band and plays shows around the Bay Area. And this woman who, you know, is, is a successful entrepreneur. And it's so rooted in the fabric of our Bay Area communities. Um, and that's why I really love that film. Yeah. And, I you know, I just realized that, yes, Randall Park is a rapper in the movie. And <laughs> yeah. how did it feel to kind of see that representation for you? Yeah, again, that's like the most that I've ever seen my personal life kind of played out on screen, you know? And the neat thing is Randall, um, who I know a little bit through our LA circles, you know, he actually came up like that. Uh, a lot of people don't know, uh, you know, early on, he was a cast member on Wildin' Out on, on Nick Cannon's uh, sort of improv battle rap show. And he actually came up in like indie conscious hip hop circles in the early 2000s, late 90s. And I think that that's such a piece of Asian America. And this is something I was just talking about with a friend the other day, uh, my boy Jamel, who's a uh, really dope black artist and educator in Harlem who got a Fulbright to study hip hop in China. And what he always says is going to China is what made him a rapper. And what I always say is becoming a rapper is what made me Asian American because, you know, I think so many Asian Americans have such a strong tie to hip hop because that is the first place we see non-white faces, non-white voices being proudly themselves. And I think personally, I've got this little theory that a lot of Asian Americans uh, who are successful in media or who have a career in entertainment actually come out of hip hop culture whether that's Aquafina or Eddie Wong or Randall Park or Jimmy Oyang or, you know, um, so many of our friends who, who have found their voice 
and and have used their racial identity or their heritage as a strength, as you know, a source of, of strength and a source of pride. We learned that from from hip hop culture. Um, so all of all of the above are reasons why I love Randall um, and and I love Ali and I love uh, that film. Well, you know, actually talking about that, so with Aquafina sometimes being controversial, how does the Asian American community come up uh, and, you know, appreciate and respect hip hop culture without appropriating it? Yeah, I mean, so for this, I always look at uh, the work of Vijay Prashad, right? The, the work of Prashad who talks about um, the idea that multiculturalism is actually subtly essentializing. And, and Prashad suggests that we don't want a multicultural future. We want a polycultural future, right? And the difference is that multiculturalism tells us, hey, ain't it great when there's so much diversity at the table? And what that means is Asians bring rice and black people bring soul <laughs> food and Latinos, Latinas bring, I don't know, salsa. And this kind of neoliberal multiculturalism actually becomes really limiting once you realize that you're only valued in multiculturalism for a perceived connection to some kind of othered culture, right? Versus polyculturalism, which understands that people not only bring themselves to the context they're in, but they're shaped and reformed by their context. And so, uh, you know, if you were talking about Aquafina, right? Honestly, personally, and, and I've talked with so many friends about this. If you know Chinese or Korean or Vietnamese girls who grow up in Queens or who grow up in South Central or who grow up in Oakland, low key, that's actually just how a lot of my friends are because they grow up, you know, there's this imagination, I think, which again is very essentializing of how Asian Americans grow up. And people expect us to speak either you know, quote unquote, broken English or white English. And that's just not accurate to how so many of my Khmer and Cantonese and Korean and Hmong friends grow up. So to me, the assumption that someone like Aquafina, right, this mixed uh, ethnic um, Korean and Chinese woman who grew up in the outer boroughs of New York, the assumption that she's playing a character or that she's, you know, performing linguistic blackface is, I think, troubling because it actually uh, is white normative. It actually presumes that for Asians to be Asian American, we've got to adjust and accommodate to a whitened version of, of Asian American identity. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I think when I think about Aquafina, I also think about why is it that she is successful in, you know, in speaking the way that she does? And what is it about Hollywood that, I don't know, finds her amusing, perhaps, because she is pretty much, you know, always playing comedic characters. Mm -hmm. And that um, and that maybe, you know, to the kind of Hollywood elite that decide, you know, who to cast and who not to cast, like an Asian girl that sounds black is like hilarious to them or something, you know. Um, and, and so that's something else in terms of like why that representation. And so, I mean, there, it's a very complex question. And I think that um, there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of passion, a lot of pain, I think, beyond, behind mm -hmm. um, the, the critiques of her. And I don't know. I just I think it's really hard for 
Asian. I feel like, yeah, growing up, it, you know, you either liked growing up in the 90s, you really you either liked hip hop or you liked Nirvana. <laughs> like, those were, <laughs> those were, and then I liked Simon and Garfunkel. That was my <laughs> and, and, the, and, and the Beatles and the Beatles. I was like, I am just going to listen to K-Earth <laughs> oldies all the time because I just couldn't choose and I was confused anyway. So. But all of music, right? All of American mm-hmm. music, all of pop music it can be traced back to black music. I mean, that is oh, um, pretty much the, the root of it all. And so, like you said, the, the kind of evolution and the, I mean, co-optation or, you know, whatever you want to call it, just this mixing of different um, cultures, it kind of is, it makes up what what U.S. pop culture is. And and now I think we are trying to talk about, well, who gets the credit and who gets the money and who gets the, you know, who gets the, the rise in their careers because of these cultures, right? And I think that is the root problem. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is a huge ongoing conversation, right? Which is, what does racism mean, right? Because there's, there's so many things Things to which that word is a reference, right? And and certainly on the large scale systemic understanding of racism as a power dynamic, Aquafina and her casting can absolutely play into racist structures that that love black culture but don't love black people, right? But then I do think that the question that you asked is exactly the question: is what can we do, right? Because You know, there's, especially when you're working, and you know this better than anyone, you literally wrote the book on this, when you are operating at the studio, at the industry level, there's so many factors beyond you. And you can always, you know, like, and and I get this all the time, if I get asked to do a performance, or to speak on a certain thing, you know, if if I'm asked to, if, if, if I'm paid to speak on, you know, uh, diversity, equity, hip hop culture, Asian America, um, what, you know, what boxes am I checking off for somebody who just wants to say, hey, we put this money into DEI training. Hey, we brought in this POC speaker. Hey, this year, you know, we committed to doing 12 events and this is one of them. Um, On a certain systemic level, and because I connect this actually to the concept of original sin, I think a lot about how, um, you know, a lot of people call racism and slavery and um, indigenous genocide, uh, America's original sin. But even theologically, I locate it as literally original sin, right? Like to me, the notion of the fall of Adam is a biblical metaphor or is a biblical understanding for the ways that systemic structural uh, inequity operates and the ways that if we're born into it, Literally, we're born with it. You know what I'm saying? Like from from when we're born, right? The the healthcare system that births us, the the diapers that we wear as a baby, the the baby food we're eating as a baby, before we even have agency, we're consuming products that that lead to inequity and that hurt certain people and that cause profit for certain people. And exactly what you're saying is, you know, to what level are we culpable? And, and what do we do to absolve ourselves of that culpability? Uh, and that's a question that's beyond me. The answer is beyond me. But I think that, you know, since, since, we on a, since, since we're doing a Christian podcast, uh, I do want to bring that up. That I just think that the notion, theological notion of original sin can actually be very informative towards sort of an understanding of and a navigation of um, systemically perpetuated injustices. 
Okay, I like that. So the idea is that we are born imperfect, right? We are sinners. Uh, we are coded towards behaving that way and thinking that way and and being tempted and et cetera. And therefore, that's an ex explanation for the fact that we are swimming in racism, at least, you know, in in contemporary times, right? That 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 is something that we are going to reproduce no matter what, pretty much before we are more knowledgeable and are able to counter it uh, actively, right? Uh, Deprogramming ourselves and and recognizing and confessing, right? I think confessing, atoning, um, changing our behaviors. And I mean, I'm just trying to think out loud. I, I, I don't know oh, if yeah. I totally agree with everything I just said. <laughs> so because I think to think about racism, I mean, I think the to think about racism as sin. And I mean, I think most people would agree that that's true, um, who, who believe in, you know, sin and the idea of sin. Um, or racism I, and the idea of racism. Right. Oh, that's true. <laughs> You're right. Both are, I guess, not always uniformly um, agreed upon that it's a thing. Um, and so, yeah, and I think that, I mean, I've always thought of like, you know, in the Bible, it says about like principalities and, you know, that that our, our struggle is not against like necessarily individuals, but, you know, these kind of larger entities. I've always thought that was kind of an indication of systemic, uh, whether it's, you know, racism, sexism, classism, you know, um, mm -hmm. just basically bigotry and inequality, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that that there is there is that acknowledgement of inequality for sure in, in the Bible. And yet, I think we don't talk about that enough in society when we talk, you know, when we talk as Christians, right, talk about poverty. And this is something I think of, a theme that I've been talking about throughout the podcast is we need to talk about poverty more. Mm -hmm. um, we need to talk about inequality more because that is actually a huge theme in the Bible and a huge desire, I think, on the part of uh, a loving God to see equity and to see the marginal brought into the light. I mean, you rap uh, about a lot of things. Your, your most recent album, actually, I was thinking when you were talking about aspirational kind of kind of this kind of pan-asian inclusive you know idea of being asian american which is it's a political identity right it's it's the mm -hmm. idea that we are um sharing this because we yes we have we have definitely um different but also overlapping interests right political interests if we want to see equality and justice in society but also deportation you know having you know the majority of asian american population here in the united states are still immigrants and there's a continual flow of immigrants that is how the population continues to grow we have shared interests in that because the laws that exclude us are the same, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, you know, the Chinese exclusion law, the, that that kind of legacy has has effects on all immigrants in this country, right? And anyway, and so your yeah, so tell me about your most recent album about deciding to kind of also invite different guests to to join you in your songs who are from different, you know, the Filipino and other, you know, Southeast Asian. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, in May, which is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, uh, my buddy Alan Z and I dropped a 15-track album called Face Value, uh, which is a concept album. Uh, and every track on the album deals with a different piece of Asian American history. So we're speaking on everything from, you know, martial arts 
and, and, and food and food culture and the economics of Asian food in America and, and beauty standards uh, to model minority, legal exclusion, uh, legal challenges to Asian Americans, uh, perpetual foreigner syndrome. Again, my rallying cry is Asian America means all Asian Americans. Um, and, and we knew that as two straight male East Asian rappers, uh, we, we would not credibly speak on the breadth of that experience. So we worked very hard and I'm oh, super proud uh, to incorporate different artistic collaborators. Um, and we wound up actually very close to 50-50 gender parity, men and women, uh, East, Southeast, South Asian voices on the record. We've got everyone from Ruby Ibarra, right? Probably the most uh, poppin' and, and radical young Filipina rapper to uh, other friends like Dante Bosco or Ronnie Chang or um, AJ Raphael. Uh, yeah, and, and we wound up having uh, an incredible breadth. We, we've got our friend B. Vang, who was uh, the lead Hmong actor in uh, Clint Eastwood's Gran Torino doing a monologue. And uh, it was amazing. It was so hard. That was the hardest part of it. The hardest part of it was not writing, was not producing, was not fundraising. The hardest part of it was fighting for inclusion. And we wasn't even fighting nobody. You know what I'm saying? It's not like we had a label telling us, oh, why you have this person? Why are you going to do this? Oh, you should have this person. It was just, again, the structural inequity is such that it, it's so easy to just go along to get along. You know, it's so much easier to say just like, oh, you know, we need a singer on this. Let's get another East Asian. Oh, you know, these are my friends. And, and naturally, just the circles that I run into are East Asian heavy. Um, so we were so conscious saying, who are some South Asian voices that, that can put their spin on this, right? If we're talking, we've got a song on there, Making the Band, B-A-N-N-E-D, uh, on the Face Value album. Um, and, and my boy Alan sings the hook. I got a verse about Chinese exclusion. And then our friend Humble the Poet, who is an incredible, incredible, sick Canadian uh, rapper and poet. He's got a verse about post 9-11 and, and what all across North America, the ways that South Asian, brown Asian communities were targeted and killed and, and, and physically and legally there was violence against them. That work was worth it because, you know, nothing good comes easy. If, if it did, everyone would have goodness, you know, but just being on a record, you know, Chinese American artist, uh, sick Canadian artist, and sort of putting our community's historical struggles and legal challenges side by side, it reveals a bigger piece of the picture, right? And again, going back to Prashad, this is why to me, polyculturalism is so powerful because here you got, you know, a South Asian and two East Asian American Canadian artists on a hip hop track produced. Uh, I think that one was produced by, by our, our, our Korean American friends in New York and speaking about all the ways, you know, that that we've experienced inequity, that we've experienced marginalization on, on legal and social levels. Uh, and it's just good music too. That that track is is has done fairly well on streaming. I I'm, I mean I, I don't want to overstate it, but to me that's a foretaste of heaven, you know, where we can have these difficult conversations, but in these spaces, 
Uh, one of my favorite uh, open mics in, in L.A., Sunday Jump. It's this Filipino-American open mic. Um, they have this slogan. They say, um, they say two things, right? They say uh, express, not impress, right? We do this. We create these things. You host this podcast not to impress someone, not to show off but to express what's, what's spilling over out of the yearnings of your heart, what you have to give. And the other thing they say is, this is not always a safe space, this is a brave space. You know, We're gonna have conversations that, that are difficult, but because we wanna be brave together, we wanna go those places. Um, and I think that there's absolutely a place in this world for safe spaces, but I think there's also a desperate need for uh, bravery, right? For saying, hey, I'm not always going to get it right, but I'm going to put my truth out there in a way that is, that listens, right? Can we, can we express ourselves as Christians, as Asian Americans, as straight man, as, you know, whatever our many identities are? I think that there's been such a confusion of sharing and projecting, you know, and I think when we share it, it, it naturally has to be bilateral. And this is why I think that the charismatic Christ is so important. The idea that God, to, to me, this is one of the most powerful pieces of Christianity, is that God desires a multilateral, at least bilateral relationship with humanity. And, you know, if, if the God, if the Christ can come and, and take flesh and walk among us and not just be a voice, but be an ear, you know, that should influence everything that Christians do, right? We should always not just be so obsessed with saying our piece that we, we don't listen. That's the, the wildest piece of Christianity to me is that we have a God who listens, a God who hears, because uh, that's where every God speaks, every God, every false God got something to tell you. Um, but it takes a, a, a pretty unique God, I think, to listen. I mean, I feel like doing this podcast has become a brave space. I'm, I'm not sleeping well these nights because <laughs> I'm talking about something that I don't usually talk about, which is faith. And um, ironically, mm -hmm. like in terms of public, like wide public, I mean, obviously I talk about it in the classroom where I where I teach and work. But I uh, but my public face, I haven't actually I mean, I've never denied it, you know, but it isn't something that I talk about at length. And and I think that, you know, because I am not a theologian, I am not not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. I am a teacher. Doing this podcast, I've started to realize that I have compartment. I have separated parts of myself, which I've never used to do. And I think mm. it is because of where I teach and and things that I know that I'm supposed to say and not say, and 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 it becomes this uh, this the struggle that I've 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 come to a place of compartmentalization, and now I'm doing this podcast, and I have to bring all my parts back together, and I'm scared. I really am scared, you know? And, and this is the funny thing about so many of us who work in these public spaces, right? Is that it is very easy to fragment and balkanize identity because, you know, this is sort of, I, I see in what you said, like um, a parallel to what Viet Thanh Nguyen speaks about uh, when he talks about sort of professionalizing Asian American or professionalizing racial identity. And there's a degree to which we do compartmentalize for survival and certainly for thriving 
in these white dominant spaces of the academy, of religion, of media. And we know that there's parts of ourselves that if we bring it to the table, um, it's going to make life more complicated for us. Yes, and it's uh, extra, extra emotion work that we have to do all the time, right? That we have to code switch, that um, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, talks about a double consciousness. Like I'm always seeing myself as myself, but I'm also seeing myself through the eyes of maybe the dominant culture, right? How are they going to perceive me? Um, like, I, you know, you know me, I usually am pretty plain spoken and I don't really, I think I'm the same in most contexts. Maybe I don't show all of myself in every context, but I don't think I really try to hide myself if I'm really mad. Mad, I can't like <laughs> I can't say nothing or I pay for it later on like you know I if, if I see injustice happening I have to say something and it does it, but you have to kind of calculate okay which injustice am I going to speak up about that's going to actually be effective right because it's like it's mm. I don't want to waste words uh, you know it's the whole like you know you got to just brush off your sandals and go on to the next town because this town isn't listening and there's no point in kind of dying here um, for nothing right and so so that's kind of, um, yeah, and I guess, you know, doing this podcast, I thought, you know, I think this will be really cool to be able to bring and integrate a lot of folks that I know are also people of faith that are doing cool things. I mean, like you. So when I first met you, it was through this Fuller podcast. I was like, okay, this dude's Christian. And then I realized that I had heard your music like long before <laughs> that. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you are the same guy that that did that Marvel's video with Hudson Yang. Yeah. And, you know, you, you you're this rapper like I didn't know that you were Christian back then. And now I know you are. And this kind of, you know, I had to kind of synthesize my ideas. And I think that that's what. Um, you know, this this podcast is like, oh, wow. Like, I mean, people who are famous, who are who are known, and then also also to know that they are people of faith and what gives them hope, right? I, I want there to be kind of a hope in this kind of disruptive um, disruption of maybe stereotypes that we have about people, right? That we assume mm -hmm. things about people and then thinking about how actually faith is a thread that connects us um, and and helps us to process a lot of the the pain and a lot of the suffering that we do experience. Yeah, I, you're talking about, or to me, what I'm hearing and what you're saying is, you know, is John Lewis. It's good trouble. We want to create trouble, but the right kind of trouble, right? Because uh, I mean, you you can go all the way back to you know the unchallenged life is not worth living. The unquestioned life is not worth living. Uh, my uh, my academic training is very colonized. <laughs> I, I did my undergrad in philosophy, right? And and he said, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, it? It's better to be Socrates discontent than than a pig content. And I think that that there is something in that that the spirit when the spirit acts creates this holy discontent. This sense of, you know, things are not okay, and that's why I'm not okay. I'm not okay. You know, if I'm feeling off or I'm feeling wrong or I need therapy, that's not because this yearning is wrong. That's because this world is not what it should be. And, and, and I tie that in my mind to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's notion of uh, the long defeat. You know, Tolkien talked about, um, in, in some of his writings, talked about this idea of, as human beings, we don't fight a winning battle. 
we fight because the fight is worth fighting. You know, and, and that goes back to the original sin conversation that goes back to sort of what I think the end game is for activists. Even like we do our best to create solutions, to help people, to create coalitions, to materially uplift those who are are at risk of, of death, of spiritual, physical death. But in the end, we might not win. We probably won't win. And to me, that's some of the message of the gospel, actually. That's the idea of faith to me. Um, and, and this is, again, something that I draw from black theology is that that's rooted and grounded in the black church um, is that, you know, for, for centuries, you got these religious communities who knew that they might die before they see the promised land. Right. This is MLK's uh, the speech he gave the night before he was killed. You know, he says, I've been to the mountaintop. You know, I've seen the promised land. I might not get there with you, but I've seen it. And that's faith to me, is that, you know, that eschatological vision that there is in God's time and God willing and God does will. We believe that God wills it such. And even if it doesn't happen in my mortal lifetime, there's going to be a time when everything will be made right. And, and that, I think, is disruptive because I think that most of us, present company included, don't have a vision of things made right. We have a vision of things made better. You know what I'm saying? But we don't actually dare to believe what right looks like because that's almost too much to dream about. And I think that that's one of the most powerful movements of the spirit is, you know, when you've got people who are facing misogyny, who are facing homophobia, who are facing rampant poverty, who are facing, you know, and, and so many times what our mortal human limited instincts tell us to do is to decrease our hope, you know, to settle for small victories. Um, but I think that faith is saying that it's not going to be right until it's all right. You know, and and that's what creates disruption is when we can believe and, and catch a vision and, and catch that glimpse of heaven that will drive us the rest of our lives. I love that, Jason. I think I've been settling for small victories. <laughs> so this is a, this is really uh, inspiring me to dream bigger because I am um, or maybe I I don't know, maybe my small victories are big. I have no idea. I think I have a I have a skewed sense of of I, I well, I think it's because when I'm when you get older, your goals get bigger, actually, or maybe not. Maybe maybe they get more um, attainable. And mm -hmm. and you know your you know you know what what you can do what you're able to do and you dream accordingly um, versus you know when you're young maybe you're you're more idealist actually I was more scared when I was young so um, I think because mm -hmm. I was coming out of trauma and I didn't actually dream very big I know people are more idealistic when they're young but I was just trying to survive as a young person and I feel like now I'm finally you know, able to dream bigger. And at the same time, I, I still have that kind of, <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, I think I, I'm risk averse, right? And I think about you, and I think that you are in such a, you know, 
um, atypical Asian <laughs> Asian profession, and just you know a, a, a struggle profession, right? You have to struggle, and yeah. and so tell me about tell me about that and how faith plays into that. The, so I was just talking with a friend, my friend Carrie. Uh, we were talking about you know we were sitting down over pho in uh, in Pasadena, and and she asked me the question that a lot of friends ask. You know, they say, uh, "How did your parents react to you? You know, becoming a rapper." And I'll always say, like, I actually really credit my parents and their faithfulness. You know, now we don't agree on everything on as comes to religion or as comes to society. But one thing I will always really appreciate my parents for is they gave me up to God. You know what I'm saying? I, I was I was, it was Abraham and Isaac. And, and they were like, all right, I guess, you know, I have no idea. Because, okay, so I went to Yale University. I studied philosophy there. I graduated with, with a, uh, a, discre- a degree with distinction in the major. Uh, and then I went to work in ministry. For four years, I was working in campus ministry in New Haven, Connecticut, and then Beijing, China. Uh, and my parents, they had no idea what that would entail. They had, you know, my dad's a chemist. My mom is a librarian. They had to, to sort of give me up and say, hey, we can't help this kid anymore. You know, this this kid's material flourishing, whether he's going to go out and do great things or go out and completely fail, that's out of our power now. And then when I, I told them, you know, I was in Beijing, I was working at a church there, and I was also um, doing rap music with some Chinese friends. And that started taking off. And I saw an opportunity to connect with people and to build community and to listen and to share um, with people that I cared about, that I felt called to even. And I told them that. And I said, you know, I'm going to move to L.A. I, 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 dear God, I can imagine what parents would hear, you know, if, if they hear that their kid wants to move to L.A. to do entertainment. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was very clear to me that that this wasn't a whim. This wasn't, hey, what's what's something that I could do to be cool and get clout? It was, hey, this is this is the next step in a ministry path that God's called me to. And I told them that. And and to their everlasting credit, they said, hey, if this is really what you feel is is the calling on your life, is the mission of your life, is a way that you can care for people and and follow God faithfully. uh, We have no clue how you're going to do this, but but we support it. And and that is what it comes down to. That's why, you know, the tattoos I have are all about faith and calling, you know, about hope, about um, overcoming fear. Because I think that I know, I know for a certain fact that if I didn't have a religious sense of conviction and calling in this, I wouldn't be a rapper today. I wouldn't be working the way I am. I would, I would have tried it for a year or two. I would have done some cool things gotten very poor and then gone and used a Yale degree to do something that would make me more money. Um, but I would, and, and I always say there's three strands of my life. There's racial identity, there's um, hip hop culture, and there's religion. And all three are actually synonymous to me. Without Jesus, I don't know who I am as an Asian American. Without being Asian, without hip hop, I don't, know the God that I know without being Asian American. I don't make hip hop music because I don't got an identity. I don't got a community. And 
initially, those were three separate pieces of my life. You know, I was I was reading Gary Okahiro and I was reading Frank Chin and I was reading, you know, uh, what is it? Warrior Woman. Right. Um, and Maxine Hong uh, Kingston. Maxine Hong Kingston. Exactly. And I was reading the Bible and I was reading theologians and I was, you know, working in ministry and and I, I was love hip hop. But now they've all kind of woven themselves together and I see them all as manifestations of just one of me, you know, I, I, I see it all as, as one combined thing. And I remember uh, our friend Ken Fong told me this when I was young, when I just arrived in LA, he told me, you know, in your twenties, you figure out kind of who you are. And then the older you get and the more you get along in your career, you, the more you understand how everything fits together and how it synthesizes. And, and how it coalesces. And I think, thank God, I'm at a point in my life where everything's starting to pull together. And, and you know, so in, in the same thing, exactly what you're talking about is how, you know, in, in your work, I see real inequality, right? Why do you care so much about this stuff? You know, why are you a sociologist? Why are you involved in entertainment and media? Why are you, you know, by the grace of God, you know, a Christian? And it's, all pieces of each other. So I think, you know, you, you, you talked about how you feel like your identity's been sort of like compartmentalized. And what I would actually suspect is that compartmentalization is, you know, not, not to tell you who you are, but to, to maybe <laughs> tell speak me, a word. tell me, Jason, I need to know. <laughs> I'm still figuring out who I am two decades <laughs> later, two decades later. <laughs> well, because what I see in all your work, right? Like is when, when you speak, about uh you know race and film and tv what motivates that that holy discontent right like why do you care you could just teach stuff and make money and be happy with your daughters be happy with your husband live you know uh, like you said an upper middle class life but you you step out of your comfort zone and what i'm guessing is that in each of the compartments are actually the seeds of the others. You know what I'm saying? It's all already co-present. It's just that because of certain power structures and because of the way that you as a woman of color in this world, in academia, in media, have to navigate, maybe publicly you don't pull all them together. But I'm guessing that already the seeds of that are present in each piece of it. And it's less creating something, creating connections that aren't there and more uncovering the connections that are already there. You know what I'm saying? Thank you, Jason, for explaining my entire life to me. And no, I don't mean it sarcastically. It, it. I don't mean it sarcastically. That sounds so sarcastic, but I didn't mean it sarcastically. I, I was like, I'm saying this and it sounds like I'm critiquing him, but I'm actually saying thank you for reals. Wow, Jason just dropped the mic on my soul. I think he may be the first guest to give me a direct prophetic word. I also loved what he had to say about how various identities in each of us intersect in life-giving ways. We need to celebrate how racial ethnic identity, the creative arts, and faith can come together beautifully. That's why I want to tell you about a book by New York pastor Drew Jackson entitled God Speaks Through Wombs, Poems on God's Unexpected Coming. I don't think I've come across anything like it. God Speaks Through Wombs is a collection of poetry that explores the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke. 
Drew uses poetry to retell the Gospel of Luke through the lens of the marginalized and weaves in themes of justice, lament, and hope. It's through poetry that Drew invites readers to creatively encounter the God of the oppressed, centering their dignity, and reminding us of God's liberation. And as a listener of the Disruptors podcast, you can purchase God Speaks Through Wombs today for 30% off plus free U.S. shipping when you use the promo code DISRUPT. Visit ivypress.com today and get your copy of Drew Jackson's God Speaks Through Wombs. I always ask the guests, you know, is there something that you're reading, listening to, or watching that is disruptive, that is disruptive in a good way, that is healing, that is everything that we've been talking about today, something that you can recommend to our listeners? So the first thing that comes to mind, again, is uh, James Halcone. Uh, Like, this is the godfather of black theology. Uh, I've been reading his classic, Black Theology and Black Power. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a seminal work of, of reframing and re-understanding and, uh, uh, God and understanding that, that Jesus is black, understanding that Jesus is for, not only is Jesus for, but Jesus is from the margins. Um, so if y'all have not experienced James Halcone, uh, black theology and black power is a great place to start. And the other thing that, that came to mind is there's this dude on YouTube, Andrew Callahan, uh, C-A-L-L-A-G-H-A-N, Andrew Callahan. Um, he makes these incredible, meme weird YouTube videos. He's like this roving journalist who goes around uh, and he goes to QAnon rallies and he goes to, you know, um, conspiracy conventions and he goes to spring break. And he just pulls out the weirdest fringe characters ever. And he conducts these incredible interviews that are just funny and weird and humanizing to people. And he has this incredible video uh, taken at Black Lives Matter protests that just really show the pain and the strength in those communities. So Andrew Callahan, he's got a channel on YouTube called Channel 5 News. Um, He's this weird, (laughs) tall, white boy who wears a suit to spring break and just creates stuff that that shows humanity in, in our extremely weird country. So James Halcone and Channel 5 News on YouTube. Those are my two recommendations for y'all peoples. Nancy, I feel like you opened up a little bit more in this interview compared to some of the others. Yes, because we're friends and we've known each other actually not that long, but I think in the time that we've known each other, we've just gotten really close because we, I think, are on the same wavelength when it yeah. comes to our, our passions and and the fact that he's in the kind of creative world, the Asian American world. We have intersecting um, networks and friends. And I could see what you meant at the beginning of the podcast when you said his identities kind of really naturally like weave together and you know there's kind of this pastoral bent to him which I don't always associate with somebody who's in hip-hop you know but he he had this kind of pastoral way of thinking about caring for people and caring for the world I also feel like Nancy I get to see a little bit of your spirituality and your thoughts about spirituality through this interview was that kind of surprising for you 
Well, especially when Jason started to talk to me about my spirituality, yeah. I'm like, no, 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 this interview is about you. Yeah, <laughs> keep the focus. <laughs> and yes, I opened up a little bit. It's uh, it's it's not that it's hard to talk about. I think it's just um, I try to um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I compartmentalization. Yeah, what, what yeah, exactly. About. I thought I thought it was just that, just what she said. Because I mean, I sometimes get that too. Because I feel like we're not professional Christians, you know. Like that's not what people like know us for if they know us for anything and so it, it feels a little weird to let people into that compartment of our world even though it's a pretty important compartment in our world i think i let people in on an individual level but to talk about it in public i feel like sometimes i feel like oh that's a that's a pastor's role or yeah. you know that's what yeah. people in the church that work in the church like yeah. you said they're a professional christian uh-huh. um, but i think that this whole podcast is about showing is about breaking down those walls right? right showing that you know we do our professions but our faith is very much intertwined and it's actually the motivation of why we do what we do and so i think that hopefully our listeners will hear that and really relate to that some colors like we cover pop songs in a bottle how we battle all the barriers right some drink some color their hair every night some try to stand out some try to act white found music but i've never been the stereo type new eyes break old lies new skin needs new wine thank you for listening to the disruptors the disruptors is hosted by me nancy wong yoon you can follow me at nancy w-y-u-e-n our theme song is new eyes by jason chu Our executive producers are Helen Lee and Andrew Bronson. Produced by Richard Clark, Cray Allred, and Myla Kim.